Good morning, church. I've missed you the last couple of weeks. I've been on kind of a trip down memory lane, visiting two churches I've pastored previously in St. Louis and, and people from the Augusta Church and at a wedding. And, but I am so glad to be home. Good to see those folks. Uh, much love there, but good to be home with you and glad to turn back to Hosea. It's been a while since we've been in this book. Uh, please turn there with me or it's printed for you in the bulletin, the passage we're going to read this morning, beginning at chapter 6, verse 11 through the end of chapter 7. If you're visiting with us, and many of you are, I want to welcome the Westminster Choir and Strings. Thank you for being here. Ginger, welcome home. We love having you here. And uh, yes, right. And uh, all parents, grandparents, and welcome. We have been studying the Minor Prophets, a group of smaller books in the cleaner portion of your Bible, aren't read very often, tucked into the end of the Old Testament, written about 700 years, uh, some plus, some minus, before the birth of Christ, all anticipating the coming work of Jesus Christ. And in this book, which is one of the longer ones, Hosea, uh, this one is dramatic. It's unique. Hosea was called, we think, by, we know he was called by God. We think that the woman he originally married, Gomer, was originally chaste and then decided because she didn't get the things she wanted, she wanted the things of the world, she became a prostitute. And it was eventually sold into slavery. And Hosea, imitating the pursuing love and grace of God, bought her back from that lifestyle, even before she apologized, brought her back into his home. And his life then, that marriage, paralleled God's marriage to his people. This book is addressed both to the northern and southern tribes of Israel, and it's split into Israel, sometimes referred to as Ephraim here, and, and Judah to the south. And, and those people, though they had been set free from their slavery 200 years before, turned gradually, over time, turned their back on him. Those sins are, are distilled in three categories in chapters 1 through 3 of the book of Hosea. They are what we see elsewhere are the love, the loves of the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. And in chapters four through six, God says, this is what's going to happen if you continue to pursue the love of the world. This is the destruction you're going to bring on yourself. We finally get to chapter seven and chapter seven answers the question that's probably begging in our mind. How did these people get to this point? How did they get to that point of recognizing the redemption of God, anticipating the redemption of God in Christ out of Egypt? How did they get to this point of now reaping destruction and the judgment of God in their, of what they've already just bringing on themselves? How did they get to this point? That's what we'll get at. Chapter 6, verse 11, through the end of chapter 7, and it's an age-old story. It may be one that you are in the middle of yourself. 
Let's listen to the word of God. Also for you, Judah, a harvest is appointed. Whenever I would restore the fortunes of my people, whenever I would heal Israel, the sins of Ephraim are exposed and the crimes of Samaria revealed. They practice deceit. Thieves break into houses, bandits uh, rob in the streets, but they do not realize that I remember all their evil deeds. Their sins engulf them. They're always before me. They delight the king with their wickedness, the princes with their lies. They're all adulterers, burning like an oven whose fire the baker need not stir from the kneading of the dough till it rises on the day of the festival. Our king, the princes become inflamed with wine and he joins hands with the mockers. Their hearts are like an oven. They approach him with intrigue. Their passion smolders all night. In the morning, it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven. They devour their rulers. All their kings fall, and none of them calls on me. Ephraim mixes with the nations. Ephraim is a flat loaf, not turned over. Foreigners sap his strength, but he does not realize it. His hair is sprinkled with gray, but he does not notice. Israel's arrogance testifies against him. But despite all this, he does not return to the Lord, his God, or search for him. Ephraim is like a dove, easily deceived and senseless, now calling to Egypt, now turning to Assyria. When they go, I'll throw my net over them. I'll pull them down like the birds in the sky. When I hear them flocking together, I will catch them. Woe to them, because they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, because they have rebelled against me. I long to redeem them, but they speak about me falsely. They do not cry out to me from their hearts, but wail on their beds. They slash themselves appealing to their gods for grain and new wine, but they turn away from me. I train them and strengthen their arms, but they plot evil against me. They do not turn to the Most High. They're like a faulty bow. Their leaders will fall by the sword because of their insolent words. For this, they will be ridiculed in the land of Egypt. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Open our eyes, O Lord, from this Old Testament book that we might see the Messiah to which Hosea is pointing and embrace Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior for the first time or for the thousandth time, regardless of where we are. Bring us home again. In Jesus' name we pray it. God's people said together, amen. It was August the 24th, 1988. Janelle Spain had just purchased a motorboat. She was eager to use it on the Welland River, one of the tributaries of the Niagara River. She invited her friend Karen Hamill to join her and and uh, together the plan was to camp and, and picnic and sun and enjoy the beauty of nature. So they got out of the boat and, 
and uh, got settled, got their picnic out and turned the engine off and just let the boat drift. Night came on more suddenly than they anticipated and, and so they decided we better crank up the motor and head back to the campsite. Must be this direction. They were a little mixed up in the dark, but they decided literally to go with the flow. The, the easier course. They just can, continued downstream. It took longer than they thought they remembered uh, to get back to the campsite. Surely they should get back there sooner than the way they had been drifting, but they were not finding the campsite. And then when they saw the sign, they knew their tragedy that was ahead. The point of no return, the sign warned. At that point, they desperately tried to go back, but they were pulled by the the more powerful tug of the Niagara River toward the falls. At that time, uh, Tom and Sheila Hodges were crossing a bridge and they saw this little bow light heading the wrong direction toward the falls. Surely that can't be a boat with only one engine. Only a, a boat with two engines is powerful enough to get out of that place, out of that point of no return. But note, they saw that it continued to drift in that direction. They called 911. You've got to get here immediately. This, this boat is going over the falls. They went over the 12-foot dam. And when they did, it hurled them both into the dark water. Uh, Karen yelled for help. A rope was thrown to her in a buoy. He pulled her to safety 500 feet short of the falls. But Janelle, they couldn't find Janelle. And, and they, they yelled and they pointed their flashlight. They had the rope and then there was a tug on the rope. Janelle had swum to the, to the rope. She was saved 300 feet, 350 feet before plunging to her death over the falls. Drifting can be deadly. And spiritual drifting is even more deadly. It can be eternally deadly. And yet we often don't recognize it with anything approaching the same urgency is drifting toward the precipice of Niagara Falls. It's this spiritual drift that Hosea is describing, not in those words, but this gradual decline, this gradual turning away from the Lord, a gradual turning away from the one who has pursued them, who longs to redeem them to the point that they forget that they can cry out to him even though they're wailing on their beds. Though they gather for worship, they don't turn to the Lord. The one who strengthened them, they have forgotten. Ever so gradually, over the course of 200 or so years, they are drifting and they're drifting toward their eternal destruction. How does it happen? How does spiritual drift occur? And is it true of you today, though you're sitting in this place? It begins, according to Hosea and according to the rest of Scripture, too, by the neglect 
of the preached Word of God in the context of worship. Now, you say, preacher, where do you find that? But look at the beginning of our text. Whenever I would restore the fortunes of my people, whenever I would heal Israel, the sins of Ephraim are exposed and the crimes of Samaria revealed. That's technical language. Revealing is that is language descriptive of what the prophets do. What prophets do in the context of worship. All of the books of the Bible are written to be read and preached. That's the way they've been treated throughout Throughout, uh, throughout redemptive history. These biblical writers wrote these things down and then they read them, they, uh, they explained them in the context of worship to the people of God. And he said, you have neglected this preaching. Even while you've been coming to worship, perhaps, you have neglected this preaching of God's word. Now, what is preaching in its essence? It's, in its essence, it's very much like what is done in a lot of settings, in Bible studies and all the Bible studies of our church where the Bible is read, it's explained, and then it's applied to people's lives. We do that in our women's studies, in our men's studies, in our youth studies. We do it all over the place. But when the Bible describes this kind of preaching, it's an act of worship, an authorized act in the context of worship where God uses this complex of activities that we do morning and evening to advance us in a very peculiarly powerful way along in sanctification. It's not anything to do with the special gifts or abilities of the, of the man who is preaching. It's just that God has ordained this. He even calls it foolishness. There's, there's nothing in, 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 uh, inherently powerful about what is being done here. It's very simple, so as to convey the power of God who accompanies this simple act of worship and preaching in the center of it to advance his people. Now, why does it work that way? Why is it so important? Because think of all of the voices. This is the voice of God. The voice of God written in the Bible, explained and then applied to our lives. Why do we need that so desperately? Because of all the other voices that we hear or even listen to the rest of the week. There's no comparison. The number of hours, the amount of time that occurs in this hour and 45 minutes or so over the course of the Lord's day, morning and evening. No way that it compares in terms of volume, to what you and I hear over the radio, over TV, over uh, in our co-workers, our unsaved family members, or our, our worldly-minded family members. That, those voices pumped into our heads, into our brains in various ways throughout the week all preach to us some kind of supposed good news or gospel. And most of it is usually false. And so this is the place where God says, I want you to be quiet. I want you to come away. Just give me 1% of the time I give you through the whole 144-hour week. Just give me an hour, 45, two hours a week to bookend your day, morning and evening. And let me speak to you and tell you the truth. 
Why is it important in the context of corporate worship? You say, I can just listen to a sermon on a podcast. I can watch it on TV. Why is it important in the context of worship? One is because we're human beings and we need this kind of incarnational gathering. We need to see and hear and feel the nearness of God's people possessed by the Holy Spirit. We need a pastor in our midst. And then even more importantly than all of that, we need to experience that preaching in the context of the drama of worship because here is redemptive drama every week. This is why we talk about retelling the gospel. When the call to worship is issued, it reminds us of creation, God calling the creation into being and then calling us to worship him. And when we appear in his presence, a holy God impresses upon us our sin, our need for a redeemer. It drives us to the cross. We confess our sins. We hear the good news that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all our sins. We respond with gratitude, the gratitude of, of hymnody and giving. And then God says, now I'm going to show you how to live. I'm going to show you the good news. I'm going to show you the way to live so that life will go well with you. And then he, he confirms that to us in a physical, objective way through the Lord's Supper and then sends us out with his benediction. We repeat that same pattern week after week, morning and evening, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, decade after decade. If we do that, he pushes a reset button every week and says, that that you've been listening to all week, all those competing voices that, that war at your identity, that try to define you as something else, that discourage you, that make you cynical, that make you the center of your universe. Whatever false gospel is there, God pushes a reset button in corporate worship and says, this is what is true. This is what I've made you for. This is where you're going. This is hope in this world. Can't be imitated anywhere else. How does someone like a Ted Gallion, who recently went to heaven this week, 90 plus years old, in this church almost the same length of time, how does a man like that finish so well? He was here every morning and evening. Do you think do you think that he approved of everything that he heard or experienced every morning and evening worship service for 80-something years? He may have, but probably not. I don't. Not everything is to my liking or to my taste. But the Bible calls this regular attention to the preaching of God's word in the context of worship, it describes it as washing with water in the word. Washing by water in the word. It's a washing, a continual cleansing, a continual resetting, refreshing. That's what happens in worship. And God says, just morning and evening, once a week. It'll make all the difference. I can tell you it's true. Having been on my memory lane journey, and seeing those who came to Christ or whom I baptized or whom I, I joined in marriage 
or who were, were uh, whose broken marriages were brought to me or they came to their addictions or whatever. And they're still walking with the Lord and flourishing these 30 plus years later, not because of the pastor, not because of a youth group, not because of a Bible. Yes, all of those were sweeteners, but the consistent, the common denominator in each of those lives who I had the privilege of serving the Lord's Supper to as they came up one by one. It was one of the greatest experiences of my life. The common denominator was. They kept worshiping. Morning and evening. They were washed by the water of the word. All right, let me bring it down a little bit with an image. When I was in St. Louis, I remembered what great car washes they have there incredible car washes. And it's important to have a good car wash in a place like St. Louis where salt is used liberally on the roads. It is is used proactively. It's used continually. It's used uh, reactively to a snowstorm or ice storm. There's never an excuse not to drive in St. Louis. But as good as salt is for those adverse driving conditions, it's not good for a metal car. And, and so you learn, if you want your car to last any length of time, you've got to wash it. You've got to put it into your budget. They're going to have a car wash every week. And you want to go to one of these car washes like they have in St. Louis, and you've got to pay a little more for the bottom blaster. These jets that wash up under the undercarriage of your car. Otherwise, you're going to... You're, Exhaust system is going, to, is going to rust out and other bad things are going to happen in the undercarriage of the car. And then if, if you're not washing the sides and the top of it either, you're going, to, you're going to have a little spot of rust appear in your quarter panel. And then eventually it's going to take over your whole car. Never buy a car north of the Mason-Dixon line, at least anyway. And uh, so every week you've got to take this in and here's what happens. You, you, you know, you've got to have it. You know, it's important, but you don't understand what's happening in that thing. You go, you drive in, you put it in neutral and then it just pulls you right into this utter chaos. Hey, there, there's, there's things blasting from the side and from the top and underneath and, the, and there's straps flinging and their brushes turning and uh, there's all kinds of useless colored foam uh, blasting that you've paid extra for too. And, but when you come out on the other side, you don't understand what's happened, but you do know when you entered, you were dirty. When you ended, you were clean and your car is going to last longer. You cannot objectively explain everything that happens in a worship service. There are things happening here that we're not aware of, but we know that the result over time, washing by water with the word produces a flourishing life. Nothing else compares. It begins there. It's the key not to spiritually drifting. Now, the next two things I'm not going to spend as much time on because you know these things pretty well, but they're warnings. What happens when you neglect washing with the washing of God's word? Then you begin to yield to lust. That's the focus of verses 3 to 7. Now, immediately in view is sexual lust, sexual immorality of all kinds. But it's not just that. 
as we've learned from Hosea, as we've learned from all the minor prophets. It's those three sins, the loves of the world. Lust of the flesh, that's sexual immorality, false sexual identity, all of those corruptions of God's original plan. And then lust of the eyes, that's materialism, the idea that what is here, I want to grab hold of, I'm going to keep, I'm going to pursue it, I'm going to give everything for it. I'm going to try to hang on to it, not just goods, but accolades of the world, affirmation of the world, and then the pride of life, that idea that, you know, I, I am the most important person in the world. I, what I determine is truth, that is truth. What I determine is right for me is right. And you need to accept it as right or I'll reject you. Putting yourself in the center of the world. That's the pride of life. And so he says, when you give in, when you neglect this constant redemptive resetting of the preached word in the context of worship, you will eventually yield to lust, yield to the love of the world. You'll be convinced that all of these things that tell you this is the way you are loved, that that is what, well, that is, what is true. Instead of hearing, no, God's love and his definition and his prescriptions of love, that alone is true. He, he describes them interestingly here, doesn't he? Verses three to seven as half-baked cakes. It's kind of the way, it's the way I'm prone to cook pancakes. You, you pour on the batter and then you forget about it until the smoke alarm goes off. You don't flip it over. You say, this is what's happened. You've just, you've just become passive and the, the world is searing you. It's forming you by its Love, instead of the equal, beautiful crafting and baking that occurs by God's formation through the word. And so he confronts their lusts. This is dehumanizing to you. You're, 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 you're a, by listening to the world, you're, you're repeating the, the sin of Adam and Eve. Who, who stood there in the garden, they had everything. Everything was beautiful and perfect. There was no shame. And the devil came along and they had been made in his image. And the only thing mentioned expressly as reflecting his image was their sexuality. Male and female, he created them because that was how he beautifully expressed his unity and diversity. It doesn't mean that's the only way you're created in God's image. There are many other rational, social, creative, and so forth. But it's so important. He said, here is the supreme beauty by which I have created humanity. And so what does the devil do? He attacks that in particular. His fiercest attacks are against our sexual identity and practice. And by doing so, by giving into it, we are dehumanized. By saying like our first parents, Adam and Eve, I don't, God is keeping something from me. I'm going to do what I want to do, what I feel like doing. And they introduce shame into their world. We pursue the same path. When we engage in those practices or those identities that are not God's ideal. We become like beasts of the field, just operating according to our impulses. And God says, 
God says to us in, in our, against our lust of the eyes or against our pride of life or against our lust of the flesh, he says, he doesn't say, now you just stop that because that's filthy and that's bad and you're, you're bad for doing it, even though he opposes it. But he confronts those, those compromises, those departures, effectively saying, I made you for so much more. That's not your identity. That's not what you were made to do. I made you for so much more beauty. And then he says, when we neglect the preached word in the context of worship, we yield to the love of the world. We let the world convince us of its message. We'll find ourselves frantically searching for direction. That's verses 11 through 13. Because you've cut yourself off from me, I've revealed myself to you. I've revealed my will to you. I have, tri- I've, I've trained you. I've strengthened you. I've pursued you in redemption. But you have, you've grown tone deaf to me. You've gone passive. You've allowed your consciences to ignore me, and as a result, you're becoming as senseless, as stupid, as doves who fly right into danger. You, he says, Israel, Judah, I delivered you from Egypt. I brought you out with my strong arm, with miraculous uh, 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 defeat of their gods. And yet you're going back to them for help. You're going back to Assyria, whom I'm going to destroy. I'm going to supplant in a few hundred years. You're turning to these, you're turning to all kinds of vain sources of strength when I have proven myself to be your God. I've proven that I'm going to preserve you as a people because through you, through your seed, the Redeemer is going to, Jesus is going to come. I have delivered you from Egypt as a foretaste of the work of the cross. You've turned your back on that. Maybe that's true of you too. You're sitting here in worship. But you come to critique. Or you come to sermon taste. Or you come to listen to music that you enjoy or you don't prefer. Or you're not even giving it that much thought. You're just coming. Or maybe you're within the sound of my voice or future recordings and you're, you're doing nothing. Either way, you're drifting. And you're drifting toward danger. Now, maybe you're overwhelmed by that. And you say, there's no hope for me. You, you called it right, Pastor. You, that is what has been happening to me. I've been I've been drifting. But it's been so long and I've drifted so far and I've done so many things and I'm, I am now addicted to certain things or I'm, I'm fully in the grasp of other things. There's no hope for me. Oh, yes, there is. The way back to fellowship with Christ is a lot shorter than the way of drifting. 
And it's implied in this text, you see, at the beginning, at the end of of the passage in verse 14, they do not cry out to me from their hearts. Instead, they wail on their beds. Well, here's the cure. Cry out. Cry out to the Lord. Save me. Take me back. They gather together for grain and new wine, an allusion to worship, empty worship. Well, here, here's what you can start doing if you're not already doing it. Gather. For the new wine and grain of God's word, the preached word, sacraments. Return to the training and the strengthening. Turn back to him. The way back is infinitely shorter than the way of drift. You know, when when the rope was thrown to... Janelle and Karen, they didn't say, now, we've got to hook up to the back of the boat. We've got to drag you all the way to the place where you started drifting. No, they just took them to the shortest place. They took them to shore. That's where they saved them. The way back. It may have taken you years, decades, a whole lifetime to get here. But the way back is instant. Cry out to him this moment. He'll take you back. Something like this. When I was a little boy, maybe seven or eight years old, my parents took me uh, to the beach for the first time. I'd never seen the ocean, the beach. It was incredible. Neither of my parents, growing up in the Depression as they did, very poor, neither of my parents knew how to swim. Of this, I was not aware when we sat out on this trip to the ocean that they couldn't swim. But they put me into an inflatable, like a little raft, and they thought, this is the greatest babysitting we've ever seen. You push the kid out, and the waves bring him back. And then you shove him back out, and the waves bring him out. You shove him back out. And, but uh, something different was happening at the beach that day. I thought that, the, you know, they were, they, had, they were flying this purple flag because it's my favorite color. How nice. It was a riptide that day. And so I would go out, I went out, and then ever so subtly, with each wave, I would be pulled out a little farther and a little farther down, a little farther out, a little farther down. It wasn't dramatic, just a little bit. My parents were watching, didn't notice anything untoward until I got really far out. My mother said, you've got to go get him. My dad said, I can't swim. I can't either, but you're going to get him. And my dad, rather short, he went in. He's terrified of the water. He walked up to his waist, up to his chest, up to his neck, panicking. But he was going after me. His love drove him after me, got up to his chin, got over his mouth. It starts splashing in his nose. He's absolutely terrified, but his love for me is more powerful. And so he takes another step. It takes him under and he bounces off the bottom, goes a little farther, bounces off the bottom again, goes a little farther until he snatches the raft and starts pulling me back. I just thought it was a fun ride. 
My dad got back. I thought he was going to throw up. I thought it was a strange reaction for the fun that we had just had. He's having a panic attack on the side. I continue to hear about that for the rest of my mother's life. I'm going to see my dad this afternoon at 92. He'll remember the same story. Terrifying. It was an act of love to save me from my drifting. God has done much more than that. He's pursued us in Jesus Christ, much more described as drowning in some places. He faces hell for us, but you have such a greater redeemer, so much greater redeemer than my dad. This one, this God is the one who set the limits on the earth for the tides and who can walk on the water. You say, there's no place that you can be that is beyond the pale of his redemption and grace. Cry out to him and he will bring you home. No matter where you've roamed, no matter how far you've strayed, he wants you back. No longer as a stranger or a guest, but like a child at home, he wants you back. So much so that he continues to reach towards you in preaching and worship and this sacrament that says, my redemption and love for you is as real as the taste of this bread and the scent of this cup.